been a slow process, but we're, we're wanting to really sort through the gospel. We're moving now in the direction of justification and regeneration. Justification isn't going to take near as long. We've already talked about it to some degree. Um, but there's some, there's some basis or, or foundational matter that we really need to put in place as we're approaching. Now, Charles Leiter in his book gives us an appendix on Romans 7. You might wonder why. Well, because it has to do with, G with regeneration and justification. And uh, I, I want to, I really want to help you guys with what's called hermeneutics. Anybody know, anybody give me a definition of what hermeneutics is? It's basically a fancy word. That's all it is for Bible interpretation. When we talk about hermeneutics, we're talking about how you interpret the Bible. Because if you're going to become students of the Bible, you have to be able to interpret the Bible for yourself. Can you guys think of any hermeneutical principles, like rules of interpretation? Context. Context. That's huge. You gotta read stuff in context. The reason so many people miss meanings of text, you guys know this. Your average church today, the guy prepares the message Saturday night. And lots of pat this is a reality. Lots of pastors golf a lot. And they do stuff and they play and they come in and they have all their tools and they basically have sermons in a book. Or they have jokes, or they have, and they try to pull this whole thing together. And so often, these guys are not students of the word. They take one text, and they never preach it in the context. They just take the text all by itself. And a lot of times, they read the text at the beginning, and they tell a bunch of stories, and never tell you anything about the text, anyways. And that's their sermon. You got to read things in context because. Just like when we speak about things. If I say, there, what do I mean? You don't, you don't have any idea. I, that could be T-H-E-Y, apostrophe, R-E. That could be T-H-E-I-R. That could be T-H-E-R-E. -E. You, no, you have no way of knowing unless I put it in context, right? It's the same thing in Scripture. You don't know words and you don't know phrases unless you take the context. Okay, that's, that's, that's huge right there. Give me another one. A hermeneutical principle. Okay, tell me what you mean by that. Um, well, I guess time as in maybe if they're having a ceremony or like a... Like things happen because this is going on, and if you read a certain passage, you're like, "Why is this?" You don't understand why it's happening, but it's because it falls over a certain, uh, like, like tradition or something. Or you may take that out of like Jewish like world events, or like the atonement kind of thing. Like well, I mean, if you're thinking, <laughs> well, okay, you're in a Jewish, like, Roman culture when we're looking at that. I mean, if you think about, if, you, if you're talking about time in the sense of you have to give some consideration to the times of, you know, the basic scenario of where the scriptures are flowing from. For instance, Matthew 18. If you've got a situation where a brother sins against you, what are you supposed to do? You're supposed to go to him. And if he hears you, you've gained your brother. If he doesn't hear you, then what do you do? Take two or three. And if he if he hears the two or three, you've gained your brother. If he doesn't hear the two or three, what do you do? Take it to the church. You tell it to the church, and if they don't hear the church, what do you do? Treat them like a... A pelican? A publican. You treat them like a publican... A, a, a heathen 
or a publican, which would be a Gentile or a tax collector. Now see, if you just take that only in modern context, I mean, you're thinking about the guy down at the IRS. Yeah, I don't like that guy. Why? I mean, that, it's, that's a whole other thing as to how they viewed a tax collector versus how we... So, if, if that's what you meant, yes. Is that what you meant? Sort of? Not really. Okay, that's not what he meant, but that's, that's, that's a principle. You want to take the historical context. Yeah, like there's a ceremony going on if you just go in there and read and like, you're like, why are they doing all this stuff? Why, why? Because the Jewish culture or whatever calls for this and that and then you can get confused. Okay, yeah, there would, there would be a cultural context. Hey, the man of the house is here. Sorry, guys, that we're a little late. Okay, another hermeneutical. So we have, we have cultural context. We have the actual textual context. Scripture by Scripture. There's a monster one. You interpret Scripture by Scripture. But what does that mean? You don't just take one text and interpret it in an unbiblical way, knowing that other passages of Scripture would contradict it. Right. You would never take one text and interpret it in such a manner that it contradicts three other texts. Right? I mean, you got a problem somewhere. Somewhere we're not understanding something. We're not understanding usage of words. We're not understanding exactly the context. We're not understanding something if we come away with interpretations. Now look, there are things in the Bible that seem sometimes at first sight to be contradictory. But there's never a true contradiction in the Scriptures. Never. That's impossible. God, God is the basic author of truth and He never... There's no scenario where two things cannot that he he gives us as truth cannot be true at the same time. That's because that makes at least one of them false, and God is not the author of any kind of falsehood. Okay, other. What about the? I'm sorry. The form of literature. The form of literature. That would be something to give consideration to as well. The form of le now, what do you what do you think he means by that? If, uh, if it's a uh, proverb, yeah, proverbs, a narrative, it's a letter. Now, why is that so critical? What's a proverb? Well, see, there's there's the thing. A proverb sometimes lays down something like it, it comes at us like it's true all the time. But it isn't necessarily true all the time. It's just a general principle of life. It isn't the way Paul might say something. When he says it, he means it absolute. When you get a proverb, it means, you know, basically the guy writing this has observed that in life this is a thing that is, is very typical. And so that would be key. Anybody got something else? To interpret the... Uh the narratives or the stories by the didactic or by the teachings. So, so like for instance, um, Elijah, right, he, he didn't die. He was carried up into heaven on a chariot of fire. So it would be wrong for me to read that and say, ah, this is the way that life ends for everybody. You know, because you go and you read and it says there's a point in every day, you know, after death, it'll be judged. So you would interpret the stories by the didactic or by the teachings. Right, you see what he's saying. We have historical narratives. Where we're, and there are sometimes we're told certain things and we're never really told whether the thing that was done was right or wrong. Mm -hmm. You know, there are times when good people did bad things and bad people have done seemingly good things. And yet, we don't want to necessarily come... We don't want to say, well, David did it. Yeah, but just because David did it doesn't mean it's right. And sometimes the Scripture doesn't tell us exactly. I mean, you could say, well, hey, um, you know, I say, you know, you're dishonest about that. And you come back at me and you say, well, hey, I see where Rahab the harlot told a lie. And, uh, and she did. But you, you know, you can walk away from that and you can justify lying. You can say, well, see, God approved of it. Well, it never actually says God approved of it. 
course, there's a lot of debate about that, but we don't need to get into that. Other other general rules of interpretation. Would it be um, heresy to say read it as if it's any other book? Because um, and maybe this has already been stated, but I know that a lot of times people will. Um, Let's say they'll, they'll go to one of the letters of Paul and they'll start Romans 4 in the middle. But if I was to hand you a letter, you wouldn't start in the middle, start reading there, yeah. stop almost at the end and say, ah, I've walked That's away. Pro That's probably a contextual thing. You really want to, you want to make sure. That, I would say this, and, and I'm, I really believe that there are a lot of places where we have symbolic meaning in the scriptures. And some of that comes back to comparing Scripture with Scripture as far as how we interpret certain things. But I would say this. We typically want to take Scripture at face value. We want to take it literally before we read. You know, some people just mystify everything in the Scriptures to the point where you just don't even know what's true and what's not true. And so, I mean, typically, unless clearly we're given some good indication that we shouldn't take it literally and that we ought to spiritualize it. And there are a lot of things spiritualized, especially in the apocalyptic sections of Scripture, which would be the book of Revelation and uh, you know some of the Old Testament prophets. When you have that prophetic kind of element, then things get, they, they get a little more mysterious on us. But even there, if we, if we carefully study the Scriptures, we compare Scripture with Scripture, we to a place where we can kind of settle on some things. There are some places in Scripture that are just purely hard. Um, well, those are some good ones, and there are others, but that's that's good for now. What I what I want you guys to do is open your Bibles to Galatians chapter five, and I want us just to work a little piece of Scripture here, and. I want us as a group to develop the meaning of this portion. And that's really what we're going to do tonight. Galatians chapter 5. And I'll tell you why I'm here. I mean, if, in case you wonder, what does this have to do with the whole study? Well, it has a lot to do with it. I tend to take you guys, and I know in the church... But some of you aren't there. But I know if you've been around for quite a while, visiting our church or your member of the church, you know that we've come through Romans 6, 7, and 8. Well, we started at 1. But I know most of you have not been there for all of that. And what we have to say about, especially regeneration, has enormous amount to do with this portion of Scripture. There is a lot of debate about Romans 7. And, typically, those that fight so furiously for certain interpretations of Romans 7 also take Galatians chapter 5 as a strong portion of proof text for some of the things that are believed today, which I believe are absolutely contrary to the doctrine of regeneration that we're going to be studying. And so what I don't want right up front is people with misconceptions about Romans 7 and Galatians 5 as we enter into a study of regeneration. Because if we go first into the study, some of you in the back of your minds are going to be thinking, well, there's exceptions. Well, there's this. Well, there's that. Well, there's this. Well, yes, that's true. But, but and, and I'm afraid with the buts, what you end up doing is backing away from what the doctrine actually is. And I think that'll make more sense in the weeks ahead. But you guys just follow with me. Um, Galatians chapter 5. We're going to look tonight at verses 16 through 25. So, I want, I want you guys to all pay real close attention. Because what I want you to do, I'm going to ask somebody to read every verse. And we'll, we'll read a verse, and then we're going to all talk about what it means. Now, one thing that probably isn't good is that we're not taking the whole context of the book, which that's one of our hermeneutics. But I, 
uh, hopefully enough people in the room have enough prior knowledge of the book of Galatians that we'll actually be able to resort to um, the context somewhat and hopefully enough people in the room know our Bibles as a whole well enough that we can resort to comparing Scripture to Scripture in some areas. But, let's read verse 16. Well, okay. just 16, right? Just 16. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Okay, right there. Now, you just approach Scripture, and it says, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Okay. What does it mean? If you walk by the Spirit, you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Ah. <laughs> and you know, sometimes it is that simple. Sometimes it's like, you know, ah, oh, he must, you know, I've got to say something really... Uh, Really amazing and profound here, and and let me ask you this: What does it mean? Now, let, let me tell you this. I I know this just having looked at the original word for walk. It is a continuous action verb. It means continue walking by the Spirit. It's an ongoing thing. He's pressing you to continue, not just to walk like that once. But to continue doing that. Now, here's a question. What does it mean? Obviously, you see this. I say, Paul's saying this. Paul's an apostle of Christ. Paul is under inspiration of God. All scripture is given by all scripture is God breathed. It's profitable. This is what we have here. We have the word of God. This is under inspiration. God Himself is communicating this to us. We are to walk by the Spirit. What does that mean? You know one thing also about Scripture? We don't want to relegate it to some high, lofty, far-removed, bookshelf-type thing just to be studied and wondered at and walk away from it and leave it there. you got to know the Apostle Paul was amazingly practical. This stuff has to do with what you do when you walk out the door, what you're doing right now sitting here. It has to do with our lives and how we're living them as Christians. And he wants us to do that right now. He wants us to walk. And walk doesn't necessarily mean movement. Walk is a, is a lifestyle. It's how we live. What does it mean to walk by the Spirit? Live as Christ lived. To uh, live according to the Scripture. Because if it's the Spirit who has written this, then our lives should be in agreement with the standards of the Scriptures. Definitely everything that the Spirit leads us to do is in accord with the Scriptures. Definitely. When it says, when you have this, walk by the Spirit. Now think about the preface. Think about the actual wording. Walk by the Spirit. I mean, let's... let's if I hear that, what, is that, what does that mean? If I say, John... Walk by David. Now immediately the way we talk, you're going to think, well, maybe there's a nearness, right? We use that term by to mean near, right? But that's, that's probably not. I mean, we can kind of logically look at that and say, well, that's probably not what Paul means. He probably doesn't mean walk close to the Spirit. But if I say... If I say you've you've broken your leg, and I say Jonathan, walk by the help of David. Well, you understand that. Well, now, he doesn't put the help in there, but he says walk by the Spirit. I mean, that would be that would be walking by the power of another, right? And it's always in accord. 
as Tafik said, with the Scriptures. No question about that. But we're walking by the power of another one. And now, the, the first thing you want to think about is, okay, well, is there, anything, is there any other place in the Scripture where we get this idea where we should walk near to the Spirit? Well, probably not. That, that, Paul doesn't typically use that kind of language. But is there any other place in the Scriptures you can think where he, he talks this way, walk by the Spirit? Keep in step with the Spirit. <clears throat> By the Spirit, put the death the deeds of the body. There's one. Where's that one? Romans 8.13. Romans 8.13. By the Spirit. So, that language is not foreign to Paul. Now, what does he mean there? In Romans 8.13, when Paul says, By the Spirit, but if you, by the Spirit, put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. What does he mean there? What is by the Spirit? Does it mean proximity to the Spirit? Does it mean near the Spirit? By the power of, by the, power of the Spirit. I'm putting sin to death by divine power of the Spirit that I'm tapping into. Now let me ask you this. How do we tap into the power of the Spirit? Can you think of that anywhere? In, I mean, if I'm... So, I mean, this is, a, this is the next thing I want to think. How... I mean, have you ever thought about this? I'm a man. The Spirit of God is the Almighty. Oh, He has great power to be tapped into. How does a person like me Walk by the power of God. How do I get it? By being born again. You have to be born again. Well, again, now I'm going to appeal to something that probably a lot of you are not familiar with, just not having been saved that long and not having read the, the book of Romans repeatedly over and over. But if you look at Galatians chapter 3, Look at verse 3. In verse 1, O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Verse 2, let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? There's the Spirit. How do you receive the Spirit? Well, when you see the whole point of receiving the Spirit is to receive the Spirit and His power, Right? And receiving the Spirit all by itself does you no good as a Christian. It's the power. How does it come? By works or by... Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Now look at this. Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? You see, folks, how do you walk by the Spirit? How, well, this is it. Walking by the Spirit is walking in the power of the Spirit. How do we tap into the power of the Spirit? Faith. Faith. Faith where? Faith in Christ. It's never faith in the Spirit. It's always faith in Jesus Christ. How do I know that? Well, he says, O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? I mean, obviously, he's looking at a faith that has its eyes where? On Christ. On Christ crucified. Publicly portrayed as crucified. You see, how do I walk by the Spirit? I walk by the Spirit in faith. I walk by the Spirit by faith in Jesus Christ. Okay. He tells us to do that. So, you know, when it comes to walking in the Spirit, what do I do? I keep my eyes on Christ. I keep my eyes in the Word. Because that's where I see Christ. And what, he says, oh foolish Galatians, and he says it's before you that Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. I mean, that's coming out of here, folks. 
You're not going to see that in the newspaper. You're not going to see that in the news. You see it in the Word of God. Jesus Christ crucified. Okay. You guys all with me so far? Are you with me? Martha, you got... Does that make sense so far? Okay. If you're walking in the power of the Spirit, what happens in your life? There's a positive and a negative. Right. You, you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. This is so parallel with Romans 8.13. Very much so. By the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body. Right here, you walk by the Spirit, you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Now, this is not just something He's telling you you ought to do. In Romans 8.13, He says, if you do this, you live. If you don't do this, you die. And he's not talking just about physical death and physical life. He's talking spiritual death, spiritual life. You see, the reason he can be so positive about it is because whoever truly has faith in Jesus Christ has the Spirit. Whoever has the Spirit has the power of the Spirit, will walk by the Spirit, and will put to death these deeds of the flesh. Okay, somebody read verse 17 now. Who's got it? Who's true? Talking about chapter 5, right? 5.17. For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit, and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. Okay. This is an enormously important verse. Somebody explain it. I mean, start going through it. Well, I'll start reading the words. You guys tell me. For the desires of the flesh. What are we talking about there? Sin. Sin. Desires of the flesh. Now, again, when you go back to Romans chapter 8, what do you have? You have flesh over against the Spirit. Again and again. If you're in the flesh, you cannot please God. Right? Isn't that what Romans 8 says? You cannot please God. It says that you're in enmity with God or your hostility against God. You can't keep His law. You don't and you cannot if you're in the flesh. In 8.13 it says if you're in the flesh, you die. If you live according to the flesh, you will die. Now, here Paul looks at flesh and spirit and he says they're opposed to each other. What, is, what does that mean? <coughs> And as soon as you hear that, you have the Spirit of God. Where is the flesh? Opposite. Where is the flesh, though? Where? I mean, we can say we can. We have an identity with the Spirit. We know the Spirit is God. He is the Spirit of God. He has been given. I mean, God is omnipresent. It means He's everywhere, but in a very special and specific way. Again, Romans 8 tells us that if you're a child of God, you possess this Spirit. If you don't have the Spirit of Christ, you are none of His. You don't belong to Christ. That's... I mean, we have, we have a good identity of the Spirit, but what, what is flesh? Where is flesh? Well, in nature... Fallen nature. Where is it? It's with us in our bodies. Right. It's a, Paul talks about the flesh. He also talks about this sinful body. He talks about this mortal body. He talks about this body of death. You, what is that part of us that is unredeemed? You see, that's what we wait for, isn't it? Yep. The redemption of the body. Because our bodies are not redeemed. Somewhere in this unredeemed body, there's a connection with this flesh. Why do Christians, why do born-again people... I mean, think about this. What, 
think of all the things that Scripture says about the Christian. What does it say? By the Spirit, you put to death the deeds of the body. By the Spirit, you're led. By the Spirit, you possess the Spirit of adoption. He testifies to us that we're His. We're called those who have risen to newness of life. Old things are passed away, all things become new. We're new creations in Christ. We are seated in heavenly places with Christ. We've been born again. We've been made alive. We have eternal life. We've risen. We used to be dead in trespasses and sins, but we're not anymore. We've been raised. We have experienced the first resurrection. We have come from death to life. The Bible says all those things about a child of God. So where's the problem? I'm still in fallen body. And the flesh is connected here. This is where our problem is. See, some people say, well, <coughs> we're two natures. We're the old man and we're the new man. and we're... That's not what it says. It says we've put that off. It says old things have passed away. We've got we to keep the Scriptures straight here. People's theology often is distorted because they don't know their Bibles well enough. They're not thinking. Old things are passed away. We are not two natures fighting within each other. We are a new nature. We are new creatures in Christ. But we have remnants that are not yet redeemed. They're hostile. The Spirit of God takes up residency in me in a place where there is a body that has not been fully redeemed. And there's conflict. Is that not what it says? They're opposed to each other. Now, somebody read it for me again. Read verse 17. But the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit. Okay, the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit. Desires. We still contain that part of us which is not redeemed, and there is flesh there, and the desires of that flesh are opposed to the spirit that's within us. Okay. And the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. So they're against each other. It's not just one's against one, they're both intently against the other. Okay, now, now check that statement out. To keep us from doing the things we want to. Tell me what that means. Would that mean like sin? Well, but, yeah, I think it's like the spirit wants us to put to death the deeds of the body, but the flesh doesn't. So the flesh wants to stop us from doing that, and the spirit wants to stop the flesh. Okay, it says very specifically to keep us from doing the things we want to. <clears throat> what is it that I want to do that I'm kept from doing and what is it that keeps me from doing it? Okay. I want to sin. I want to be perfect. I want to be perfect. And what is it that keeps me from being perfect? My sin. Okay. Now. Indwelling sin. One thing that we want to do is as we go through this, we want to keep in mind the whole overall flow of the context. Verse 18. Somebody want to read that? But if, you, but if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Why would he bring that in? What does that have to do with anything he just said? Well, perhaps he's not talking about what we think he's been talking about. <laughs> Maybe not. If it is that you want to be perfect, but... Maybe it's saying you're not under the law, so you don't have to be. Could that be it? 
because you're led by the Spirit. But let's move forward again. Verse 19. I'll read that. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and these, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Okay, now let me ask you guys some questions about this. What does verse 24 say? What does Paul say in verse 24 without hesitation? Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with his passions and desires. So the flesh has wicked passions and desires. Are they running rampant and out of control and forcing us to do what we don't want to do? They're crucified. They're crucified. Now, do you guys see that? If you're in Christ, now follow this. If you are in Christ, I'm not saying you're perfect, but I'm saying this. This flesh that remains... Now here's the thing. I have the Spirit dwelling within me. I'm a Christian. Is there a struggle? Absolutely. If by the Spirit, Romans 8.13, you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. You're putting these things to death. There's a battle. There's a vicious battle. There's ups and downs. There, you may lose some of the battles, but you're going to win the war. And as a whole, Paul is saying this. He is making a comment about the general characterization of your life. He says, if you are a child of God, if you belong to Christ Jesus, you have crucified the flesh. Now look, when you crucify something, that doesn't mean it's already totally dead. Right? Crucifixion. You know what it is. They put men on a cross. They hammered them there. And what happened? Life totally was sucked out of them. They hung there through, through exhaustion, through exposure, through suffocation, through the wounds and the bleeding, through all of it. They died slow deaths. Their strength was sucked out of them. But crucifixion is basically putting something to death. And it's the sucking of the power out of it. You guys have a picture of that in your mind. But he's saying this. If you are a true child of God in this room, the flesh and its passions and desires have been crucified. He's not playing a game here. He's not making jokes. He's not being light. He's not saying, no, this is how it ought to be, but it's not really that way. He's saying, this is how it is if you belong to Christ. Regeneration is real and it's powerful and it's true and it's valid and that's it right there. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. They have done it. It's not up for debate. The world does not recognize, most of religion today does not recognize this truth. Carnal Christians galore. Oh, they're going to heaven. They just, you know, fell in with the bad crowd. You've heard that. I've heard that. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Now look. Let's back up to verse 21. You have this whole list of things. Works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality. Some, start, some translations start with adultery, then sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, which could be unbridled lust, idolatry, sorcery has to do with witchcraft and drugs, enmity has to do with hatred, strife is fighting, jealousy, fits of anger, rivals, rivalries, which is also selfishness and divisiveness and dissensions and 
divisions, which is also the word for heresies, envy, murders, some translations put in there, drunkenness, orgies, or revelries, or partying, and things like these. What does he say? These are the works of the flesh. I warn you, I, and I do, I warn all of you in this room. I warn you just like Paul warned them. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. I'll tell you this, you take this verse right here and verse 24, he's talking very straight, he's talking very dogmatically. He says, you know what, these things better be put to death in your life. Flesh and its passions and desires better be crucified or you will not inherit. He says, I warn you. You got guys like Sanguinetti's mom's pastor. This guy that used to be his pastor, he sent me an email from him. You know, these guys are touting this, this, you know, live like you want, even lose the faith, even go off into... It's a bunch of garbage, folks. He says, I warn you, and I warn you guys, we need to take this serious. You cannot live that way. If the Spirit of God is in you, you cannot live that way. Now look, when you go back up there to verse 17, let's go to verse 18, because I want to explain this. If you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now he uses this argument you know what? He uses this argument in Romans chapter 6 too. You know what he says? He says, sin shall not have dominion over you. Why? Because you're not under the law. You're under grace. Let me explain this. Basically, Paul views everything from two spheres. Two realms. You are in one realm where you're under the law. And there's another realm where you are under grace. When you are under law, what's the requirement of you? Perfect obedience to the law. If you do not keep all things that are written in the book of the law, Galatians 3.10, you are cursed. That's one realm. It's the realm of the law. But there's a realm of grace. How much law do I have to keep there? If I'm under grace, how much law do I have to keep to be saved? Oh, no. Done. I'm saved by grace, right? I'm under grace. I'm not saying how much will you keep. I'm saying how much do I need to keep in order to be justified. I, I, I don't have to because I'm not accepted in that realm because of what I do according to the law. I'm accepted by what Christ did. Right? That's the justification. Anyways, there's these two realms. There's the realm of law. There's the realm of grace. Now here's the thing. The... The realm of law is the realm of the flesh. The realm of grace is the realm of what? The Spirit. And that's often how it's put, how they're contrasted. You have law and grace, flesh and spirit. And yet they're the same realms. And, and he uses other terminology as well. But these are the two realms we're looking at. And what he's saying, his very basis for making a claim like he does in 18, but if you are led by the Spirit, what he's saying is, the very fact you are led by the Spirit shows you're in this realm. You are not under law. And the very fact you're over here in this realm, listen, he just got done saying, these two are opposed to each other so that you cannot do what you want. Now, if we come along and we say this, and you just follow this whole, whole thinking here. If we come along and say this, what Paul means here is this. What he means is, spirit's against the flesh, flesh is against the spirit. And because I'm not totally redeemed as far as my body goes, there is some flesh here, and that flesh fights against the spirit so that I'm not able to do what I want. And you see, most of you said that that's what that text meant. But I'll, I'll tell you this. As soon as you begin to take our little hermeneutical practices that we all, the principles we all thought about ahead of time, and you begin to compare Scripture with Scripture, and you begin to consider your context, you begin to run into some problems with that interpretation. Because you know what you have Paul saying? You have Paul saying, look, you're basically this Christian who has good intents, but you can't carry out what you really want to do because of the flesh. 
And yet he turns right around and says, if you belong to Christ, the flesh with his passions and desires has been crucified. And he says, as far as these deeds of the flesh, he's, the, the works of the flesh, he's saying, look, I warn you, those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. In other words, he's saying the people that inherit the kingdom of God, the people that belong to Christ, the people that have the flesh and its desires and passions crucified, the people that are under grace, not under law, the people that are being led by the Spirit, you, most of you concluded, well, but like when we're like that, we just can't do what we want to do. And you see, this is a big problem with Romans 7 and the way it's so often interpreted. What it does is it's a flat contradiction to the things that are said otherwhere, other places in the Scriptures. I mean, you've got Romans 6 that says, sin shall not have dominion over you. It says you've risen to newness of life. It says that you're dead to sin. It says that, that you have become obedient from the heart according to the, the, the Word of God, basically. I mean, you are free from sin. You are now slaves of God. You are slaves of righteousness. You basically have been set free from sin and you've been made a slave to God and you bring forth all these fruits that lead unto sanctification and the end of that is eternal life. And then people run right over to Romans chapter 7 and they say, and then I can, oh wretched man that I am and I can't do anything I want to do. And see, that's the same thing they do with that text right there. And they say, well look, this is a parallel. I'm saying it's a flat contradiction. You see, if we interpret Scripture in light of... And we're going to look at Romans 7 next week, Lord willing. And we'll, we'll walk through it. We're going to walk through it very slowly. But I'll tell you this. You all see, if, if you take verse 17 out of the picture, everything else here says victorious life for the Christian. Right? Everything here does. But if you isolate verse 17 and you take it out of context, and you interpret it like most of you interpreted, you have what kind of Christian life? Defeated. Failure. Every time I want to do something, the flesh rushes in and doesn't allow me to do what I want to do. That is not a picture of the Christian life. The Christian life is one where you do not do the works of the flesh. And it's one where the flesh and its passions and desires have been crucified. So let me give you better interpretation of Galatians 5, verse 17. What if we say this? What if we say that flesh is against the Spirit? Spirit is against the flesh. Let me ask you one thing. Which one's stronger? Spirit. In a dog fight with spirit and flesh, I'd put my money on the spirit every single time. What if we said this? What if we said that, well, in the context, in verse 15, if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. In verse 25, if we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. You see what you kind of have as bookends here? Watch out that you're not consumed by one another through this biting and devouring. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. You know what he's doing? He's dealing with a church that had kind of abandoned Christ for works of the law. And what it did, you see, as soon as you turn from Christ in faith and you tr start trying to keep a list of rules, they became carnal. Sometimes we think, oh, a list of rules, that's what I need. What we need is Christ. Because when our eyes are set on Christ and we have the Spirit, that's when we conquer. That's when we're successful. The Galatians had moved their eyes off of Christ. You see, that's what he's dealing with. How did you guys get the Spirit? How was God giving you the Spirit? How was God working miracles among you? It was by faith. It wasn't by works. Why, You foolish Galatians, why have you turned your eyes away from Christ who was publicly crucified before you and you're gone back to these 
elementary things. This is the same argument he had with the Colossians. So right here in the context, you know what you see? They're becoming fleshy because they're getting their eyes off of Christ. But you know, it seems to me that what's happening here is he's saying this. Look, if you have the Spirit, the Spirit won't let you do the things you want to do. And automatically we jump to that and we say, well, that must be the Christian who only wants to do good things and he's being hindered from doing them. But I believe it right in the context with who he's dealing with here, you've got some Galatians that are acting everything but like, like they're living like they're supposed to be. They're moving away from, in fact, he's concerned for them. He's concerned that they may not even be true Christians. I mean, he's pressing to that point. He's saying, I warn you. I'm warning you. I mean, he's, he's seeing some people that need a warning because he's saying, you're drifting in a very bad way. You may, not, you may end up not even be true in the end here. And he's saying, look, because as a true Christian, I know this about you. Even though you may want, I believe that the desire at the end of verse 17 there is not a desire for good. We all as Christians know this. And if you walk with the Lord any amount of time, you know this. I believe that the the one not letting us do what we want to do is the Spirit. It's not the flesh. Because everything about this text is victorious. You say, well, I've never heard that. Actually, Albert Barnes, if you know him, he's done a commentary. He hits on this note. I, I looked at him right before I came over tonight. I think I think that I think he's hit that right on the head. I talked to Charles Leiter today, who wrote the book, and I, I asked him about this verse as well, and he, he's very much in agreement that that's the picture that we have here. Is it's the spirit who doesn't Christian, how often have you known when you have wanted to do something that was fleshly and the Spirit stopped you in your tracks. You see, we can relate to that. Not only is that fit the context, that fits our experience as well. The context is more important. We want to, line, we want to make sure Scripture agrees with Scripture first. But think along these lines. What we have here is a picture of the works of the flesh are something you do not do. And I warn you, if you do them, you will not inherit the kingdom of heaven. If you belong to Christ, you've crucified the flesh with His passions and desires. And that fits perfectly with if you're walking by the Spirit, the Spirit will not let you do the things... You say, well, it, see, sometimes we jump to these conclusions. Yeah, but the Christian's desires are only good. And we think that way when we come to Scripture, but practically that's not the case. I mean, we have times when we, we do have thoughts of doing something that we shouldn't do, and we come under conviction, and the Spirit of God is faithful to lead us in there. I, I really believe that the parallel we have here is found in Romans 8.13, which has come up again and again and again. What does Romans 8.13 say? If by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Verse 14 says, For all who are led by the Spirit are children of God. See, if we're led by the Spirit to put these things to death, we prove that we actually have been born again and are children of God. I believe that that's the picture here. Christian, thoughts come across our mind of doing things we ought not to do. But as a Christian, can we not say we know the Spirit's power in our life to keep us from doing the things that we otherwise wanted to do? And can it... Can it are, is that just a foreign concept to all of you? The Spirit's reality in that way? That I actually had a mind to do something that would not have been pleasing to God? I actually it entered my mind to do... I thought to do something, and yet the Spirit of God kept me from it? Or I thought to allow a certain idol into my life, and I came under such conviction, and the Spirit of God just would not allow me... I mean, is that, is that, am I speaking... 
to people that can relate to this? Yes, sir. It becomes very consistent with the text, and it becomes very consistent with the victorious picture that Paul's painting for us here. I believe this. As I have read and reread and reread my Bible, and especially the New Testament, I am just amazed at how victorious Paul paints the Christian life. There really is no place in all the New Testament where we see Christianity as a defeated thing. There is no place. It is always the Christian realm, this realm of grace, this realm of the Spirit is one of victory. And that's what we dealt with a little bit on Sunday. We're more than conquerors through... Christ. This is a realm where we are certain of victory. We are certain of final victory over all that sets itself against us, over all the flesh, over everything. Look, what the Scripture says repeatedly is, this is a realm of victory. This is the realm of grace. This is the realm of the Spirit. This is the realm of Christianity. You have been born again. You have been risen to newness of life. You are redeemed. Old things are passed away. You live in this realm. Live according to who you are. Nowhere does the Scripture say that you are the old man. It always says that we've put off the old man. And we now are the new man. And it says, so live according to that. It's always a victorious lifestyle that's pressed upon us. In Colossians, Paul says, put to death your members that are on the earth. You know, you know what he's... I mean, he says, you're seated with Christ in heavenly places. Put to death your members which are on the earth. What language is that? It's like he's saying to us, that's where you are. That's what you are. Don't live like you used to be. That's how you were. You were uncircumcised in the flesh. Gentiles according to the flesh. You were like that. You were darkened. You were darkness itself. You did live like this. But that's not what you are. That's not who you are. And that is not the realm you are in. You were in the realm of sin and death. But that's exactly what Romans 8.2 says. The, the law of the Spirit has set you free from the law of sin and death. You're not there anymore. You've been freed from it. You're over here now. Live like that. If you are born again and belong to Jesus Christ, you put to death the flesh and its desires and its passions. I warn you, you can't live like that and inherit the kingdom of heaven. And so, I, I really believe when we're dealing with this whole thing and he's, he's saying, walk by the Spirit, you will not gratify the desire. Look, look what he's saying. Walk by the Spirit and you will what? Walk, I say, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify, not gratify the desires of the flesh. He's not saying, well, if you got the Spirit in you, as hard as you try to walk according to it, the flesh is always going to be right there and you're not going to be able to do what you want to do. You see, that's, not, that's what He's not saying. He's saying, walk by the Spirit and you won't gratify those. The whole point is, where the Spirit is, if there becomes some kind of desire, some kind of bent in us, some kind of want in us, that isn't right, the Spirit of God is there. If by the Spirit I put to death... You see, the Spirit of God is there. He's present. He's convicting. He's moving us. He's leading us. That's, that's what it says. If by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, in Romans 8.13, 8.14 says, For all who are led by the Spirit... You see, the Spirit is leading. 
And it's like if 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 we think we want to go over here, he's leading, he's drawing, he's moving, he's pressing. The Spirit of God is very powerful. That's that's why the writers of Scripture can talk so positively about only those who do the will of the Father will inherit the kingdom of heaven. Christ isn't saying you've got to do the will of the Father in order to merit the kingdom of heaven. He's just saying, look, the proof you're in this realm, if you've got the Spirit, it's such a powerful thing, it so radically transforms your life, you will do the will of God. I warn, and this is how he can say, I warn you, if you're doing these things, you're not going to inherit the kingdom of heaven. You know how he knows that? Because he knows where the Spirit is, you can't live that way. Because he knows where the Spirit is, you have crucified the flesh. You see, if you walk according to the Spirit, you won't. Again, it's totally victorious. The problem is, we go through that whole context, and yet at one place, we want to totally flip the doctrine right on its head. What do you guys think? It, it's like, um, if you've ever looked at one of those uh, like optical illusions, that can be one of two things. And once you see one thing, that's all you see. And yeah. you're kind of like, how could I have not seen that before? Right. Now it's like, wow, that, the other way doesn't, doesn't even make sense. I don't know how I could have looked at it that way. No. As soon as, 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 soon as you see it, it's like, ah, it all fits together. <laughs> but, but the reason I wanted to go through something like this is just because I want you guys to not just... I want you, you know what? It would be better for you guys to spend a month reading that many verses and come to the end and say, I think I've got a grip on this. Rather than, ah, you know, you try to read through and you read through and you kind of lightly read over and you really don't know what you're reading. You don't know the logic behind what you're reading. You just, I mean, it's good to read. It's good. You know, I remember when I first came to the Lord, I heard John MacArthur say, take a book. Take an epistle and read it once a day, every day for a month. Yeah. And you know what? That was very. I did that in the beginning, and that was very profitable. And I commend it to all you guys. First John, good place to go. Philippians, Ephesians are a little longer, but well, that's about like First John. But I mean, good ones to start off with. Maybe Colossians, Philippians, um, First, Second Thessalonians. Great books just to. Dive in. Galatians is a good one. Romans is longer and deeper. Hebrews is longer and deeper. But some of the shorter epistles, you just get in there and just work them and work them and work them and really try to get the flavor and the direction and what's the argumentation and what is it that's being pressed and you know get where you know where certain things are in the book. Now you know the, the when I first became a Christian, the first book I read was First John. I mean, in this fashion, in this 30-day, read it at once a day. And you know, you get to the place where, for the rest of your life now, when somebody mentions anything in 1 John, you may not remember exactly the chapter, but you'll remember, oh, that's in 1 John. And the more you read it, you'll, you'll say, oh, that's in 1 John chapter 2. And then, and then the longer you read, then you're like, oh, that's 1 John chapter 2, somewhere about verses 4 to 7 or somewhere. Familiarity with the scriptures. But so I want. I, anyways, I just wanted to hit on this tonight because I want to show you. I'm going to really be developing this for you. This doctrine of regeneration that we're going to be dealing with in the weeks ahead. The Bible does not allow a defeated Christian life. Now I'm not talking perfection. There's struggle. There are times, you know, little children, I write to you that you sin not. But if you sin, you have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. I mean, Christians, the little children can sin. I'm not saying we're going to reach perfection. Paul himself said he had not yet reached that perfection. He, he was stretching for it. He was reaching for it. But he hadn't, he hadn't got it yet. Maybe some of you that remember when I preached through some of this portion of Scripture, Paul was a man who could say, I know nothing against myself. He was a man who said he kept his conscience clear before God and man all the time. 
it is possible for you to live a life where at a given time in your life you know nothing against yourself. Paul could say that. The Corinthians were bringing a charge against him, and he said, look, I don't care... I don't care if you bring any charges. He said, I don't even care really about my own evaluation of myself. That's not the issue. He says, in the end, I've got to, we've all got to stand before God. But he said, I know nothing against myself. That's an amazing statement for a man to make. And yet, it's possible, shy of perfection, to actually live a life on the level where our conscience is clear before God and man so that we know nothing at any given time against ourselves. Regeneration, possessing the Spirit of God, this is a life we're talking about. This is what I'm wanting to press you guys to. A life of purity, a life of holiness, a life of... just a, a life that is so far above this world. It's possible. I want to press you guys to it. This is Christianity. This whole carnal Christian thing, this whole thing about you can be a Christian, you can walk in all this sin and do... It's, it's garbage. Paul says very plainly, I warn you, and I warn all of you, that message is deadly. This, this thing, his... You know, this, this, you guys come across carnal... Christianity, you come across these guys who reject what they call lordship salvation, you guys come across the Zane Hodges, the Ryries, and the books say so great salvation and some of their garbage out there, look, I'm warning you, you come across anybody that tells you that you can basically be a Christian and live like the world, I'm telling you, that's a, that's, that's a message right out of the pit of hell. He says, I warn you, you will lose your soul, you will not inherit. Christ said it, Paul said it, it's, it's a serious matter. This thing of regeneration is so powerful. A person who's been regenerated has the seed of God in them. And 1 John says you cannot practice sin if that seed is in you. You cannot. Yes, you will fight sin. And yes, sometimes you will fall. But your nature is radically, it's radically changed. You're not a pig anymore to go lick up the muck and a dog to go back to the vomit. You're not that. You're like a lamb. You may get your little bit muddy, but you're gonna you're gonna be jumping out of that mud because your nature is different. The lamb doesn't like mud. The pig wallows in it. If you find you're wallowing in all these sins, all these sins that were described as the works of the flesh, you should fear greatly because it is not well with your soul. Don't rest there. I don't care what anybody, I don't care what you're hearing on TV, I don't care what you're hearing from any preacher. They're false prophets if they're telling you anything else. You guys have seen it with your own eyes. This is scripture I'm talking to you. It doesn't matter if I tell, you know, Paul in the very Galatian letter says it doesn't matter whether, whether you know, an angel from heaven tells you this. If it's contrary to the gospel he preached, you reject it, you run from it, like poison. It doesn't matter if it's me that tells you. If it's contrary to this word, reject me. Reject it. I'm not the authority. This is. Amen? Amen.